What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner. Hey, what's up, guys? I wanted to put a little preface on this episode. This episode and the next one are a little bit older. I recorded them back on the 8th and the 10th of March. I didn't get a chance to edit them before I went on vacation, but now I'm back, back in the swing of things, doing live streams and everything. So I wanted to put these two out. I did take the untimely content out, but there was some quality stuff there. So uh, I wanted to put these out uh, for you guys to listen to. Okay, let's get right into it. Today, we're going to cover Powell's testimony in front of, I believe it was the Senate Banking Committee. Uh, He testifies in front of different committees, one in the Senate and one in the House. Usually it's the day, you know, one day after the other, so maybe he'll be there tomorrow. But anyway, today uh, I was doing a live reaction during his uh, testimony in Telegram. So we're going to go through some of my notes that I took from that uh, and different reactions I had. We're going to go through a GBTC story. They are... This morning they met, I guess, or in court with the SEC about their ETF filing and the premium or the discount, not the premium, but the discount moved quite dramatically. So we're going to take a look at that. So thanks for joining me. Guys, the home base that you see here on the screen is BitcoinAndMarkets.com. That's the website. Uh, You can see today I released one of the live streams from last week. I was trying to get caught up on these. but anyway, so I released a podcast today, going to release another one a little bit later today. I know it's two in the same day. It's probably not good for my metrics, but <laughs> that's what we're going to do. Also, I put out a free weekly newsletter on Mondays called the Bitcoin Fundamentals Report. So you just sign up for the free you know, email notifications on the website and you'll get that uh, free newsletter. Also, there's paid memberships and there's also a market pro tier which is my exclusive price analysis, macro analysis tier. Um, Each issue has a dozen charts or so, and I walk through what I'm seeing, what I'm thinking for the price. Uh, So I try to keep most of my price analysis contained to that market pro tier. So check that out. That's an excellent way to support honest Bitcoin analysis from a semi, I I guess I am an expert, but a semi-expert because there are no real experts in Bitcoin yet. But yeah, that this I've been one of the most accurate analysts in Bitcoin for years. Going back to the beginning of this podcast, back in 2016, I started the podcast because I'm an economist and I thought people were making wrong economic <laughs> arguments about Bitcoin and about the hard fork and, and all of this stuff. And so I started the podcast to address those issues way back in 2016. I've gone on a few hiatuses throughout the years, but you know this is still the longest running macro podcast in Bitcoin, and I have a very unique perspective. Um, I've never sold a scam, never sold you know ICO, DeFi tokens, never sent you to Bybit to get eight hundred dollars free trades or whatever. Um, and so this this is content you guys can trust, and you know that I'm not trying to scam you. I'm just trying to explore these ideas, learn from myself and take you along with me. And I hope you find that valuable. Anyway, so the the market pro tier is kind of the culmination of my knowledge that I've gained and also uh, a great, great way to support the show if you find yourself uh, with the means to support the show like that. So appreciate everybody that supports. 
All right. Um, should we do price first? No, let's jump into the Powell commentary. So this was the post on Zero Hedge that I shared this morning. He testified in front of the U.S. Senate. I think it's the banking, Senate Banking Committee. Yeah. And I watch these things so you don't have to. <laughs> but let me just go through a few of these important pieces. So, of course, in this video, if you want to go back and watch this, you know, you can take some of the, these timestamps and go back and watch it yourself because there are a few interesting passages uh, from the senators. This 90, 95% dry, but there is there is actually some comedy. There is some back and forth. There's some uh, little tiff between Senator Warren and Powell. So there are some interesting pieces. And so if you want to go back and watch those, then I have timestamps for you. So anyway, here we go. Uh, Jerome Powell, he's the, the whole conf or the whole session starts at the 33 minute mark. And then at the 44 minute mark, he does his, uh, or no, the whole thing starts at the 25 minute mark and he starts speaking at the 33 minute mark. And of course, it's just the typical Powell boilerplate that we have become accustomed to. There's a few things in there that people pulled out and they thought were important. And they are important because they're slight changes to the script, right? That's what we look at as well when it's FOMC minutes. We look at if they change an adjective. I mean, that's, I'm not kidding you. If they change an adjective, it's like a big deal. Or if they add a whole sentence, I mean, that is a gigantic deal. And so these FOMC minutes, if you read one from like last year at this time, it's going to be very similar to, you know, maybe this March meeting, but, or not minutes, sorry, the, the press statement, it's going to be pretty much exactly the same, except a few minor differences. And as you go through the years, these differences are going to add up, right? But, and also they change a lot when we get a new Fed chairman. Anyway, so he's, he just has his boilerplate. What were his big things that he said was um, that he thinks it could be appropriate to, in, you know, reaccelerate their rate increases. They haven't been able to tamp down on inflation the way they thought they were going to. And of course, this is not money printing inflation. This is just price rises. If you're new to my content, I have to point that out because... That is one of the major piece, uh, points of confusion, why people don't understand what's going on and why the Fed is not really doing anything and why they uh, don't understand this either, because everything is inflation. At 44 minutes, he's asked uh, a Bitcoin question. When I say Bitcoin, it's because I don't <laughs> try not to use the word crypto. But he's asked about crypto or digital assets or something. Uh, so I call this a Bitcoin question. And he states that the Fed is watching this space closely. They don't want to stifle innovation. There's lots of fraud and they cautioned banks to be careful. So not much. All right. There wasn't, he didn't say much in that question at all. Uh, one thing I noticed by watching this video feed is that people were smiling and laughing and tended to look in a good mood. They did not look like they were concerned about a recession. They did not look like they were in a recession. They did not look, you know, these type, you just, that's one of the things I noticed is people's general attitudes. And yeah, they're, they're the bureaucrats. They're the, 
politicians and uh, elected officials and stuff, but you can kind of get an idea for the general sentiment in the market by watching these, these types of things. And it did not look concerned. What does that tell you about recession? I think that tells you more than, more than you would think. Okay. At minute 50, he reiterates his uh, commitment against the fed getting involved in political climate policies like the ECB has done. He was asked several times about that. And each time he reiterated, no, the Fed is not going to get involved with ESG or with climate in any way. Uh, they do do a stress test. He was asked at one point about a stress test for the banks, which, you know, the Fed does. And that part of the stress test that they, part of the new stress test was testing against a climate emergency. <laughs> I mean, global warming is not, it's not an acute emergency. Like it's not like one day the whole earth is going to burst into flames. I mean, that is what a solar flare might do, but not what climate change would do. Right. So um, anyway, they added that to their stress test and he said, well, you know, that's different than getting involved with any sort of policy and we're not going to do that. So he reiterated multiple times about that. That puts the fed at stark contrast with the ECB. The ECB has now outright targeted. I mean, you know, they, they're doing QE at the same time that they're raising rates, by the way, uh, because they are reinvesting quite a bit. The way the central banks do QT is they don't go out and sell things into the market. A lot of people think, oh, they're, they're shrinking their balance sheet and they're selling treasuries out into the market. The way they increase their balance sheet is they buy treasuries. They're not selling treasuries. They're just letting these treasuries mature. Okay. But if they have a target of like 10 or 15 billion euros or billion dollars every month to let roll off and 30 billion is rolling off, they have to repurchase the difference. And so what the ECB has said with climate specifically is that they are going to reinvest that with climate consciousness, whatever the heck that means, you know, and I don't know if that's the exact wording, but they are going to reinvest that accordingly, according to some climate policy. And the Fed is like, no, 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 we're not going there. He's reiterated multiple times during this. So uh, that's what we have for that. At 50, oh no, I said that. Okay, at minute 54, this was a very good question. And I don't know which senator asked it, but I think it was the third or fourth senator. And he asked if there were different government policies no, if there were different government policies to bring energy prices down, and he used the, you know, like upping U.S. domestic oil production, would that not, uh, would Powell not have to use such blunt monetary policy to achieve his inflation goal? And when, when this question came out, I was like, wow, that's a really good question. I mean, he worded this very well. and. For a, for a senator, <laughs> he worded it very well. And I don't know what the senator's like uh, real job was. He's wasn't familiar to me, so he's not like a career senator. Um, but it was a great question. And let me see what Powell said in my notes. Um, it was kind of an interesting answer. Powell said that their policy doesn't have much impact 
on oil prices. And I think that's interesting because, no, it would if they were printing money. You know, if they were printing money, it would have an inflationary effect, right? I mean, prices would go up because you're printing money and debasing the money. And why would oil be uh, outside of that? So, of course, they their policy, if they print money, would have an impact. But, yeah, he says they don't have an impact. So that tells you, that should tell you, that he doesn't think their policy really is about printing money. Even QE, you know. So anyway, he says that the prices tend to fluctuate over time and they don't have much, and the Fed doesn't have much effect. Uh, So then this guy, the senator, whatever, he followed up with another good question. He said, the fact that you've been increasing interest rates, but the inflation rate has continued to ride up would suggest, as you've just indicated, that when you have high energy prices, it's tough to impact that part of it with the monetary policy that you have available to you. So this is a, he f- opened up this question from the previous question, and now he's saying, well, look, okay, well, would um, more energy production or better energy policy in the United States help you? I thought that was also a very, very good follow-up. And let's see what Powell said. He dodged it. He dodged it. He said they focus on core inflation. And he was asked this question later, or a very similar question, and he dodged it by concentrating on core that does not have the oil component. Um, but yeah, again, this was a really good uh, series of questions here. And it was at what minute was this? 54. So if you guys want to go back and look at that, I said, this is such a good follow up. What Powell just walked into is that he is raising rates, but energy policy is a big driver of price rises. So the Fed is willing to fight demand, crush people in order to allow the progressive people hating, sorry, the progressive people hating environmentalist Marxists to attack the energy industry. That's a pickle. Let's see how Powell answers. And I just told you, okay, at the one hour mark, we get to listen to Senator Kennedy. And if you guys don't know who Senator Kennedy is, he's, I don't know what state he's from. I think like Kentucky or something, but he has a pretty strong Southern draw and he's very colorful, but they get, they go back and forth. And at about the one Oh five minute or sorry, one hour, five minute mark, he holds Powell's feet to the fire uh, on wanting to crash the economy. He says to tame inflation, you're going to have to put a lot of people out of work. Powell, after back and forth of not answering, Powell says, yes, it could turn out that way. So that's very interesting. Okay, at minute 107, Powell is asked about supply chains and their effect on inflation. And of course, again, if you guys are listening to this podcast, you know that inflation is money printing. It is not prices. And this was a back... uh, Something, a comment I made or a tweet I made this morning, Jeff Ross, you know, he's working with Bitcoin Magazine now and uh, he's an investment guy and he was talking about price increases due to money printing are different than price increases from supply chains and fiscal. And that is what I have been pointing out for so long. And he's like, the Fed action is actually harming the ability to recover from supply chains and fiscal fiscal caused inflation. But you know, the thing is high prices are the cure for high prices. When it's a supply side thing, 
high prices are a good thing because that is the market trying to heal itself. If you put off high prices or the, even the effect of high prices. So let's say there's a supply chain issue like in Europe with the sanctions, they cause this self-inflicted energy crisis on themselves. And they um, then had all of this fiscal spending to ease the effect of these high prices on their economy. Well, what they're doing is they're blunting the force that the market is applying. And the market is applying this force of high prices to heal itself. And the government is working against this, uh, against that market process. It, it's really funny that they cause market failures with the excuse that they're fixing market failures. But anyway, so he's asked about supply chains and their effect on inflation. He states right up front that the source of the initial inflation was supply chains. So that's the first time I've heard him admit that. Um, but that has now spread to housing. An interesting statement, actually. JP says that house, the housing component is baked in and coming down in the next 6 to 12 months. So he's, yeah, he used the word pipeline, I think. that Yeah, lower housing prices are in the pipeline. So we know that these are coming 6 to 12 months from now. And I've talked about this being a lagging indicator. But where he says inflation is starting to show up and what they're concerned about is the service sector. Services, uh, but I say that services could hit a brick wall, unlike housing that has a natural lag and natural smoothing function, services could crash month to month. They could go from 1% month over month increase to negative 1% month over month. Uh, it's a very volatile sector, you know, because people could simply stop going to restaurants or at least stop going to restaurants nearly as much going once a week instead of twice a week or whatever the case is. Um, they could skip a vacation. And if they only take two vacations a year and they skip one, that's a 50% drop in their demand. Uh, they could maybe skip a dentist appointment because they can't afford the copay. And, you know, you have two dentist appointments a year, you skip one, that's a 50% decrease. So like these things can hit a brick wall very, very quickly, the services in my mind. So they're setting themselves up to be surprised by the service sector. And you can mark my words right here. They're setting themselves up for a surprise to the downside in the service sector, whether that is this month in the February numbers that are going to come out next week, or if that's in April or something, they're setting themselves up for that. More than half of all of the CPI increases in the last few months have been from housing. If housing is in the pipeline, baked in the cake, that it's coming down, and services can drop month, month to month, they can drop dramatically. They're setting themselves up for a, to be behind the eight ball once again. And I think the Fed, you know, I've said this multiple times, the Fed follows the market, but also the Fed wants to be late because they would rather be late than be early. Think about this. If the Fed moved and the market didn't follow, that would hurt the confidence in the Fed. And one thing I've said about the international financial system, the international credit system, it's based on trust and it's based on confidence of these international institutions, one of the most important being the Federal Reserve. Now, if people lose confidence in the Federal Reserve, that's going to affect the credit markets. That's going to affect 
the entire financial system. And so you want to keep that confidence in the Fed as much as possible. So if you're early, you risk looking a fool. But if you're too late, yes, you look a fool, but you can still say, man, our monetary policy tools were so freaking powerful, guys. I mean, we turned that dial a tenth of a percent too far and we crashed the economy. How powerful are we? You can, can have confidence in the power that we yield. All we need to do is promise to wield it more carefully in the future. By being late, they, they would much rather be late than be early. And they're setting themselves up here for a surprise to the downside in the service sector, in the CPI. Okay, let's keep going here. Minute number one hour and 14. Jerome Powell has asked again about if oil production were to go up in this country, would that bring prices down? And the way that this female senator worded it, it was very good because she kind of got out of the policy question or the not policy, but the kind of legislative question. And she just asked an economic question. If production were to go up in this country, oil production, would that bring prices down? And he had to answer over time, yes. But we are concerned mostly about core inflation. So again, he tried to dodge it, but he had to answer yes to that simple economic question. Um, but then she actually did a better job following up than that first guy talking about the oil. And he said, uh, she said that, well, yes, but the price of energy doesn't just affect the price at the pump. It affects all prices across this great nation. And then she moved on. She didn't ask him. She didn't say, well, do rising energy prices and oil prices affect other pr core prices? You know, does that leak over into that? She didn't even ask that. She just stated it. At least she stated that. And then she moved on. Um, they only have five minutes, you know, each senator. And that includes Powell's responses. Okay, so then we go ahead to one hour and 27 minutes. And let me just take a break here real quick. So guys, if you're joining here in the middle of the live stream, what's up? Ansel Linder, Bitcoin and Markets live streaming on YouTube. The channel is BTC Market Update. I'm on Twitter at Ansel Lindner, live streaming there, and also on Telegram, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. We're going through Powell's testimony here. I watched it, so you don't have to. I've timestamped it, going through all these timestamps so you can, um, you know, if you want to, I didn't write them down other than in this big list of notes on Telegram. So you can write those down and go back and listen to some of these uh, key passages. But okay, at minute or hour one, Minute 27 is good old Senator Warren, Elizabeth Warren, Pocahontas. <laughs> I do have actually a pretty high percentage of foreign listeners. So if you guys are unaware of Senator Warren, she like went through college, got all these scholarships, and she constantly got all this uh, preferential treatment because she said she was Native American. And <laughs> then she took a DNA test and she's less. Native American than the average American. I mean, the average American is like 1% Native American or something. She was like half a percent Native American. So that's why Trump called her Poca Senator Pocahontas Warren. Anyway, um, her voice is just really off-putting as well. I don't like her. She constantly attacks Bitcoin. She constantly is just mad at people. I mean, she's a, a Marxist 
zealot socialist person. Uh, but anyway, so she, even she is, was identifying things like this oil production causing uh, our clamp down in the oil industry in the U.S. causing higher prices on everything. She even identified that process as being outside of the Fed's control. Um, but she didn't talk about the oil industry because, of course, she's a climate crazy. But she, what she missed was price gouging. And when she said that, I seriously almost fell on the floor because, I'm sorry, price gouging is not like not really an issue. Um, supply chain kinks, she called it, and the war in Ukraine. But of course, it's the sanctions on Russia. It's not the war in Ukraine. It's the sanctions on Russia. And those are self-inflicted. But, uh, okay, zero about the crushing energy policy by the administration. I think that omission is very obvious to people. Uh, no one believes that Putin is to blame for sanctions by the West. I mean, nobody that has a clear mind blames Putin for something that Brussels and Washington imposed on themselves or responsible for shutting down parts of the energy industry in the U.S., so yeah, that's uh, what I have to say about that. But she does go on. Warren and Jerome Powell, I mean, it's pretty entertaining exchange. They get a little bit short with each other because she asks him a question. And what she says is, your own projections say you want to increase the unemployment rate by 1%. So that works out to be about 2 million people. So are you saying that if 2 million people lose their jobs, that the American people will be better off? And then he tries to answer that, but she cuts him off real quick. And she's like, are, no, are you really saying this? That you think that, what are you going to say to these 2 million people that lose their jobs? Are they going to be better off? And he was like, well, if the option is having 5 6% inflation, then yeah, the entire, everyone will be better off. And this is actually a really big problem with their reasoning because it's obviously a utilitarian type thing. The greatest good for the greatest number you know, that's a slippery slope. It's hard to defend where you stop that, right? But anyway, so then she says at minute or one hour and 29 minutes, she's grilling him. And she says, out of the last 12 times since World War II that the unemployment rate went up by 1% a year, as you are trying to do now, how many times has that not ended in recession? And he didn't want to answer. And she's asked him again. And he didn't, you know, he kind of tried to dodge it. And then uh, she like made him answer. And he said, I think that number is zero. So that was a very entertaining back and forth. And it seemed authentic from Jerome Powell's side. Um, you know, I, you guys know me, I kind of think that Jerome Powell is somewhat of a straight shooter, at least probably the most straight shooter chairman that I can remember. And I can, let's see, I remember Greenspan, Bernanke, Yellen, and Jerome Powell. So out of those, that group, I think uh, Alan Greenspan was a pretty straight shooter, but Bernanke was not at all. And Yellen is a horrible person. And so I think Jerome Powell is the best that we've had in, you know, 20 some years. Anyway, so she's grilling him and he says that, yes, he thinks that number is zero. Um, then after she berates him for a little while, because they get five minutes and that exchange lasted for about four. And then for the last minute, she's just talking down to him the whole time. Then at the end, when she yields her time, she doesn't make eye contact. You can see on the video, she's like looking down at her papers, shuffling them, looking kind of uneasy, like, 
oh, I just gave it to him, but I'm not going to look at him. I can't look at him because I'm either embarrassed or she knows that she's kind of losing her craziness is losing favor. You know, her kind of progressive outbursts are losing favor. So she could not make eye contact with Jerome Powell. And I just bet if they showed him at that moment, he was eyeballing her death stare and she just could not make eye contact with him. So I thought that was a telling moment. Um, and that's the type of stuff you get from me. This is the analysis that I bring. To, oh, damn it. I hit my mic. This is the analysis that I bring to this stuff. So let's continue here. At minute 134 or one hour. Sorry, I keep messing that up. One hour, 34 minutes. I think this is Vance from Ohio. I think I recognize him, but I'm not sure. And he sounds a little bit like I've heard some audio of his, you know. Um, I think that's him. And he's sitting next to Senator Loomis. So, you know, she is waiting in the wings to get on the mic. She's a big Bitcoin supporter. I mean, she's a shitcoin supporter as well, but, you know, at least she's supporting Bitcoin in that way. So Senator Loomis is sitting next to him and he starts bringing up the world reserve currency status. And at the very beginning, I'm like, oh, God, here we go. They're going to start talking about the privilege that the world reserve currency gives us and why isn't Powell trying to protect this status more and yada, yada, yada. But no, he takes it in a very interesting direction. And I was, I was actually very surprised with this. He says, but it does come at a cost to American producers being the global reserve currency. That status has some downsides and not just some upsides. I mean, that, that was interesting. Then he also ties that back into, in a compound question, of course, as they always do, ties that back into how it's hurting American producers. Well, let's talk about some shortfalls in American production that, that are pivotal right now. Okay, this, I'm, these, I'm paraphrasing, trying to simplify what he's saying. And he's like, we can produce 14,000 artillery shells a month while Russia fires 20,000 a day. And they're trying to up U.S. production to 20,000 a month. Now, is this due to being the world reserve currency? Since we have hollowed out our manufacturing base, that we are now so far behind that we can't even keep up with production of artillery shells? I mean, this is a great question. And the way he built this up, I was super impressed, okay, for a politician. I mean, if I heard this by some, uh, you know, academic or something on in some talk or read it in a paper, I, this, this is, that's where that belongs. I mean, this was a carefully crafted question, and I was actually very impressed by it. I didn't, I didn't put down what he answered here in my notes. Uh, he probably just dodged it, you know, said something insignificant in response. Okay, then at minute 146... One hour, 46 minutes. Jerome Powell is asked again about climate change, and he shoots it down again. Zooming forward to two hours and six minutes, Jerome Powell states again that they aren't considering changing the 2% target, though some people have said that they are. And this is kind of a back and forth, you know, like, can they get back down to 2% CPI? Some people have said, oh, well, they're going to have to raise it. And this has been major I think Nick Timoros, he's the Fed whisperer at this time, he's actually talked about raising the 2%. But Powell here is adamant that it is very important that they do not raise the 2% target. And I agree. 
Um, okay. Then at two, two hours, six minutes, and 30 seconds, we get Senator Loomis. And this is one thing that maybe us Bitcoiners are waiting for. And she's her question is, do you consider the U.S. cost of borrowing in your monetary policy? And it was a direct direct answer. He said, no. Okay, then two minutes later, she switches to stable coins. And I didn't detail out everything that she talked about, but uh, here's the interesting stuff. She talked about stable coins and Bitcoin regulation, digital asset regulation. Uh, Jerome Powell doesn't really answer. He doesn't have anything substantive, substantive to say about it. Uh, but then she gets him towards the end. And I like this... I'm always surprised <laughs> because about 90% of those senators and those uh, politicians are just hot air, right? But there's a few that really kind of build up and they, they have a point to their questioning. And I think this is really interesting. So anyway, uh, towards the end, she points out that Basel now says banks can hold up to 1% of Bitcoin with proper capital backing. And the regulation actually says 1% or up to 2%, but that second 1% has to have even further restrictive capital backing. And uh, so she pointed that out, but then she said the SEC is going around telling US banks that they can only, they can't have any, they have to be on zero. What gives? Loomis asked to Jerome Powell and he dodges it. He's like, oh, that's an SEC thing. That's not my thing. And then she uses her last few seconds to point out that the Fed is a financial regulator. You know, they regulate, they're the banking regulator where the SEC is the securities regulator. And they are both not following international agreements, which is what Basel is. Every country has passed this through their, not every country, but I think almost every country has passed the Basel uh, banking requirements through their legislatures and sign on to those things. And so those are international standards, international agreements, and the Fed and the SEC are not following those standards. And I thought that was very, very interesting input by her at the end there. So that is going to be it for the Powell testimony today. I don't know if I'll do this again tomorrow, but that is all for that. Now, the other news that we have today is, let me find something here is uh grayscale they you know are the what would you call them proprietors i don't know proprietors of gbtc grayscale bitcoin trust they were meeting in dc circuit court to this morning about the sec denying them go, you know changing the trust into an etf this morning also there was a huge spike in GBTC. And let me actually bring up that chart and see what it's doing. So here is the GBTC spike this morning. It is up 8.5%, which is a pretty big increase. I also found a story related to this. Out yesterday, GBTC discount narrows to 42% ahead of Grayscale's ETF hearing on Tuesday. Uh, I thought this quote was interesting at the bottom. It said, uh, quote, this could be a good opportunity to capitalize on any potential discount convergence 
to net asset value ahead of the final decision, said Sean Farrell, vice president of digital asset strategy at Fundstrat. Quote, we are seeing the market put this into practice already as GBTC is up approximately 3% against Bitcoin this morning. While far from a certainty, it is our view that the market is underpricing the likelihood of a grayscale victory, end quote. So that's very interesting. So back to this tweet, uh, BTC underscore hat. I don't know why his name is crypto hat and then it's BTC hat. He should just be Bitcoin hat then. Uh, why Bitcoin is not crypto and crypto is not Bitcoin. But anyway, he said, Joe Carlosari, where are you at? And Joe Carlosari is the resident kind of lawyer that people are kind of familiar with in Bitcoin. And he said he listened to the whole thing. Seems like a clear win for the SEC. And then this crypto guy said, ha, you're crazy. So anyway, that is the status of GBTC and the discount. We'll see what happens. Now, I wanted also to cover something about the GBTC discount and premium. It's a big deal when GBTC is in a premium because there is a one-way function for Grayscale to buy Bitcoin. So the way great uh, GBTC works is accredited investors can buy new shares at NAV or net asset value. So pretty much spot price. So they can buy new shares at spot price. And what that forces Grayscale to do is go out into the market and buy Bitcoin so that they have Bitcoin to back every single share. And it's not one-to-one. It's I think it's about like 0.09 or 0.08 at this, at this time. 0.08 BTC per share. So people have to go, or Grayscale has to go out and buy the Bitcoin. So that's a one-way buying pressure. Now, when, you, when these people sell their share, it's not like Grayscale sells the Bitcoin. They never sell the Bitcoin. The only time that they end up selling their Bitcoin is every year they have a 2% management fee. So the peg goes down every year. So from 0.09 to 0.08923, every year goes down by 2%, whatever that is. So that's how they sell the Bitcoin, but they can buy it all at once. So if there's a ton of influx of demand for new shares of GPTC, that is a net buying pressure on Bitcoin that goes into somewhat of cold storage, you know, at at least it only has a 2% drawdown every year. That doesn't work the other way, okay, because they don't sell Bitcoin into the market, they they buy it, that's a one-way function. Now, what can can these accredited investors do to make this a risk-free trade? Well, okay, you buy this GBTC at NAV, but then you have to hold it. I think it's a six month lockup. So you can't sell that for six months and people, okay, well buy the premium. So you're buying at NAV and there's a premium on the price say of 10%. So you're getting it at a 10% discount. Uh, so that's great. But what happens if the price falls 10%, then you lose, right? Well, no, you go and you short the secondary market. So you short the where it is at the premium and that enables you to have a trade that's a risk-free trade that you can just scalp that premium. So what's the result of that? Well, the result is constant buying pressure for Bitcoin from GBTC. So when this goes back into premium, I mean, it's a long way from from going back into premium. I think it's still at a 40% 
discount, even after today's action. But once this does go back into premium, that's a huge deal. It's almost <laughs> depends on what you want for Bitcoin or what you think would be good. I understand the argument that people don't want this to become an ETF because then an ETF actually will buy and sell. So they, they, when new people buy new shares, the company goes out and sources more Bitcoin to back those shares. But when people sell the shares or they turn them in or whatever, they, they can sell the Bitcoin, um, not like GBTC. It's a one-way function. So I see the argument for wanting to keep Grayscale as a trust and getting that back to a premium. And then there's automatic buy pressure for Bitcoin. And actually, that's going to be it, guys. So that's the last one I have for today. Thank you for joining me. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. I do these live streams almost daily on Telegram, Twitter, at Ansel Linder, and YouTube. The channel is BTC Market Update. Brand new channel. Just got, I didn't get reinstated, but I started a new channel because my other one was uh, terminated and trying to build this back up. So would appreciate if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you're subscribed. If you're watching on Twitter or uh, listening on Telegram, go on over to YouTube and subscribe over there. BTC Market Update is the channel. All right, guys. Well, that's going to do it for me today. Have a good rest of your day, and I'll check you on the next one. Bye.